Welcome. This is an audio recording from the Northwest Coalition for Healthy Intimacy. The topic is Walking by Faith with a Sexual Addict, delivered by Meg Wilson, during our Restoring Intimacy Conference in September 2015. This presentation contains Christian faith references and comes from a Christian faith perspective. Other recordings from our Restoring Intimacy event are available on our website at www.healthyintimacy.net. Now, of course, in our scenario, um, my husband was the addict and I was the person betrayed. That's not always the case. It's not gender specific. So I just want to be clear on that. Um, the enemy really likes to look for ways to disqualify us. So um, that's not a disqualifier. Betrayal is, is real and the, t- and the, the things I'll talk about still ap- apply. And my husband was supposed to be here with me, but darn it, his work th- sent him to a conference. And so um, he's actually getting on an airplane right now. But we're going to have, we're going to hear from him. I have a couple of video clips from another conference that we both spoke at. So I'm excited that you'll get to kind of hear from his, his perspective as well, because that's the full story. I'm only half the story. He, he affectionately calls himself the source material <laughs> for my book. So that's his name, not mine. And then the other thing I would just maybe start with is I want to say that um, as the faith-based person here, I recognize that the church has two sides. It can be a wonderful addition. Adding the Holy Spirit into your healing and your recovery to me is the fourth leg for that stool. And so it's powerful, but it's run by broken individuals. And so the church can also represent a lot of pain and it can injure people that have already been injured. And for that, I wanna say I'm sorry. And it's not God's plan, but it's the reality of living in a broken world. And so I hope that, that if that is, is you, for, first of all, I'm glad you took a step into a faith-based thing, if that is you. But um, I just want you to hear that, um, that allowing God and allowing the Holy Spirit into your healing process is a powerful, powerful addition, along with the other tools. So I guess I'll start with, oh, I forgot to ask about the clicker. Oh, never mind. Probably just, yay. Um, I'll start with a little background. My story is, um, I guess I'm, I didn't realize that people who find out all of a sudden without a lot of information that we're kind of a small group, but that's kind of my story. I didn't have any idea about my husband's secret life. I was going on, had the two kids and the dog and everything but the white picket fence and really thought, you know, the world was, was good. But I also am a proverbial optimist, and so I always tr- paint everything with a positive light, which is a good thing, but can also be a, a coping mechanism. So 17 years into marriage, um, it's funny. My husband, you're going to hear a little bit of his side of this story as well. It was interesting to listen to him describe the, the, the first days around the disclosure. He came, he had back-to-back business trips, which never happened. So he was gone for a week, home for a weekend, and gone again, supposed to be gone for another week. And I knew he was home for the weekend and something was wrong, but I just thought, well, he's stressed about work, you know, positive poly. 
And when he describes it, he says he's, he was home for a week, and I kind of, I said, you weren't home for a week, but I thought about it later, and I thought, I bet it felt like a week for him, because he had fallen, was home, and then was leaving again. So when he left again, he called his um, small group leader and told him about his failure. And um, I, at that point, had already received a partial disclosure. Thank you. Oh, okay. That worked good. Thank you. Um, I had received a partial disclosure probably a couple years prior. And that was... That happened because a friend of ours called, my husband called us and said he was stepping down as a deacon of his church because of internet pornography. So that was the first I had ever heard of anything like that. And I knew this man. He was a good husband and a good father. I'm not even sure what I said to my friend. Hopefully it was something encouraging. And, but because of that, that was the impetus for my husband realizing, oh, wow, I have that same issue. Of course, it took him a month to tell me. And then he told me 90% of it left out the part that he thought would end our marriage. And we, w- we went on, and I was like, oh, it's only pornography, and he's getting help, and I'm so thankful. And um, we moved literally from Phoenix to Washington, and we found a church that had a for men-only group in it. And I thought, awesome, and he was in counseling, awesome. I'm so fortunate. And I thought, being a good helper, a lot of us are good helpers, and I thought, we, there should be something for women. So we went to our pastor, and, and he very wisely said, you know, let's not reinvent the wheel. There's a church about 40 minutes away that is doing a program. That was East Hills, Pure Desire at the time. Why don't you go through their program, and we'll bring it to our church. So fast forward, we have our first little group of 10 ladies, and um, I'm going to share my testimony of hope. It's Tuesday night. So I get a message on the phone that from my husband saying he's coming home early from his trip, something about his boss being supportive. So I knew he hadn't lost his job, and I knew it was bad. So that was a really long day. It's amazing to me that after 15 years, it's still very fresh, very real. So um, he just said, I want you to be home and when I get home, and that our daughter will not be there. So she was in high school at the time, both of our girls. So um, I just waited, and then when he walked in, he had a rolled-up journal in his hand, and he had been spending the the flight trying to write down everything. It probably would have been nice to have what Stephanie described as a more planned-out disclosure, but um, thankfully, there was still um, a greater hand on it. So he came and he told me, and because he had been in FMO, he knew enough not to give me those deadly details that would then, I'd be forced with those images, so I'm thankful. There were even a couple times in the disclosure process, which took three days, where he said, okay, I'll answer that question, but do you want me to? And I would stop and think, no. He's willing to answer the question, that's huge, but I don't think I really want that question answered. And so... There was definitely a divine hand. So I was crying out for three days to God, why? Why me? Reminding God of all the things that I had done. You know, I was a good wife, stayed home, quit my job to raise my girls, and, you know, in case he forgot. So, um, and, and of course, God in his graciousness listens. And, and then on the third day, um, 
that's probably for my husband that's when the the darkest information came out that the information that he was sure that if I heard I would run screaming into the night those are his words and for me at the end of three days it was more of the same so it didn't impact me that way and in that moment I really, I can't even describe, there were so many things going on in that moment. I remember looking at my husband and seeing not this man who betrayed me, but a boy, a little boy who at 10 years old um, found his dad's pornography and has been carrying 30 years of pain. And I, I really felt like I heard God answer my why, and he said, you know, if you don't extend my grace to him, He may never know it. So I knew that it wasn't my fault, but I knew I had a responsibility as a believer on how I would respond. And so I, um, not in my own strength, put my, just put my arm around him, and um, he, just, he just broke down. It was, if there were literal chains, they fell off in that moment. Not that that was happily ever after, let me be clear, but that was the beginning of when healing could begin. That was when we could really start moving forward. And, um, and so that's, gosh, that was, yeah, it was 15 years ago. And um, I think I want to stop there and let you hear a little bit about, a little bit from his standpoint, and then I'll go from there. So let me, let me do that. My um, essay journey started when I was 10. Uh, that's not an uncommon uh, statement for, for betrayal, betrayers to make, although I think it's probably getting younger, unfortunately, in our society. And when I found my dad's stash of pornography, um, it had an immediate impact on me. And to give you some background, I grew up in a middle-class family. My dad was a career Air Force officer, served in World War II, Korea and Vietnam. Um, retired as a full colonel, and uh, had a, a distinguished career. Um, but he was gone a lot. And I have very few memories until age 10, there's a coincidence in there, of him in my life, because he was gone all the time. He retired when I was 10 years old. But he was still absent. And the pain that I was, the pain that I had, and Trust me, it took years of counseling to come to grips with this, to understand this, is that I was abandoned. He, he didn't, my family didn't mistreat me, but there were a lot of things going on in, in, in their lives that affected me. I also know that obviously my dad had pornography, and, and knowing more of how he grew up, um, he was an addict himself. He was an alcoholic, and he had several different addictions. But loneliness and abandonment were were the two key motivators for my addiction. And I remember picking up the Playboy magazine, and I can still, I still can see the picture of the woman on the cover of Playboy, and immediately she was communicating to me that she was going to take care of me. I was born, my parents were in their 40s when I was born. Hello? Okay. Um, and I had two older sisters, nine years and 13 years older than I, I was, and by the time I was 10, my parents wanted the empty nest thing. I get it. We're empty nesters. It's awesome. Any empty nesters out there? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. 
Okay. So looking back now, it made sense. As a 10-year-old, being home alone a lot, it made no sense. So the, the picture of that woman, and then the other pictures obviously in there, had an effect on me. And what was profound years later thinking about it is I immediately took it next door to my friend, my best friend, who was a year older than I was, and I showed him and his older brother, and they laughed. This wasn't a laughing matter to me. This was something I didn't realize at the time, but it was significant. So right then and there, my first, my, my, the response to my friends was totally different than mine, and I truly believe at that point I knew I was the only one that felt this way because it had a dramatic effect on me. It, it, that, that surge of adrenaline and dopamine and all the other mediators filled an empty hole, well, at least temporarily anyway. So I went back to that pornography quite frequently until one day it was gone. So obviously, my dad figured it out, never said anything. And by the time I was in puberty, obviously, using those images for masturbation, that brought up a whole new level of what I thought pleasure and fill, filling that hole. And it was fairly constant in terms of my behaviors until I got into college and I saw my first X-rated movie. Then that took it to a different level. And then the computer age came around 1993 or four. And then that took it to a whole new level. And what's interesting, at each one of those stages, especially the computer part, because Meg and I were married, and I had an opportunity earlier in our marriage to really share with her, because from the moment I saw that Playboy magazine, I knew it was wrong. I don't think I had that thought, but I could feel it. I knew it was wrong, but it gave me something that I was desperately wanting and desiring, even though as time went on, it became less and less and needing more and more, if you understand addictions. Do me a favor. This, I'm not able to keep track of my time, so are you keeping track? Good, thank you. See, technology, I'm telling you. So, one point I want to get across is the importance of becoming 100% truthful. Because I can go back, if, if I drew you a timeline, I could show you specifically where I had definable opportunities, specific opportunities to tell Meg everything. And every time that I partially disclosed, my addiction went somewhere I never thought it would ever go. And it wasn't until I was on a business trip and the last night of the business trip, I failed once again. I was with a prostitute. And God, I don't think it was an audible, but it was a message from God saying, okay. I know I didn't say dude, but I was like, dude. You either stop this now or you will die. And I knew what he meant, not emotionally, spiritually. No, he meant physical death. And 
it's time to tell Meg everything, because those two statements were intertwined. If you don't tell Meg everything right now, and you continue doing what you're doing, which you will, it'll go another place where you never thought it was going to go, and you will die. That's what I heard. Now, being the addict that I was, I did not immediately tell her. I came home for a week and struggled and struggled, scared to death. And then I went on another business trip. However, this time, when I got to the destination, I called a very good friend of mine. In fact, he's the one who told me about surfing for God. And in fact, at that point, I need to digress just for a second. I had been in For Men Only for three or four years. In fact, I was in leadership at that point. Let that sink in for a little bit. So I call my friend who is, was the, I got the great Pumbaa leader of FMO, and I confessed to him over the phone what had happened. So he said, well, let me think about it. And I'm like, okay, I'm thinking I'll have time to go through the meeting and then I'll come home and we'll work this out. Well, the very next morning, very early in the morning, he calls me and says, you need to come home now. And Meg will talk a little bit about this in her part of the presentation because he said, your wife is getting ready to go to her Healing Hearts group as a leader and talk about all the wonderful things that are going on in her marriage right now because of all the hard work you're doing. You cannot allow that to happen and you come home a few days later and destroy her with what you're going to tell her. Because he was saying, you have to tell her everything. And I knew what everything was, trust me. And he said, you need to get on a plane, get back here, and before you talk to her, you need to write everything out. And I don't know if many of you are familiar with the four-step under the 12-step, and that's doing a complete moral inventory. But I did that on the two-hour plane from Phoenix to Portland. And over three days, I was able to finally tell Meg everything. And the very last piece of that was something that I really felt, the deep, darkest piece that gave me the greatest guilt and shame, I was able to tell her, but I knew that she was going to run out of the room screaming. And I'll let her tell you what the end result of that was. But the key thing that, that I want to leave with you with my story is that I get the shame, I get the guilt, and it starts immediately. But you have to, if you haven't done it, I want to encourage you to become 100% truthful to your spouse. Because until that happens, you really can't get on the healing path. I thought I was on a healing path because I was managing my addiction and I was making some progress. And Meg would tell you that she saw some changes in those three or four years prior to my full disclosure. But it wasn't until after that that she was able to see real discernible changes, but more importantly, I could see myself real discernible changes. So, you get a little bit of the other side of the story. So we're, we're basically, we've left you at that moment of crisis for a long time, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> and so that night I had to go to my, my group and my co-leader, I called her two or three times and said, I can't go. My co-leader was the, her husband was the man that my husband called. So I said, I can't go. I'm going to, 
these poor 10 ladies are going to watch, you know, their worst nightmare played out. And so I said, I don't think I could go. And I'd hang up and then I'd call and I said, I think I need to go. And <laughs> I don't know. Finally, she said, I'm picking you up and I'm not answering my phone. So I went and I basically told the gals what happened and we all cried and it was huge to have that support. And I just basically went from, from a leader to a participant in the class and my co-leader just stepped up. It was wonderful because I, I, um, I needed that support in that moment. And so we share our story not because I want anyone to compare because um, we, we women are good at that. But every journey is every journey is unique, and I really want. Um, but I really want you guys to hear some of the principles which I think apply. That we kind of learned along the way. Um, in that moment, when 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 disclosure or discovery occurs, I liken it to a car accident, a near fatal car accident. And there's two people in the car, and there's two very different injuries. My husband needed to be wheeled off and, you know, deal with his brain injury. And I had to deal with internal injuries. And so I'm a big proponent of what Stephanie said, is having your own counselor. There's just two very different processes that are taking place in that beginning point. Uh, for the women, there's shock that we have to deal with. I mean, for me, it was literal shock when he was telling me. I'll never forget. I had that out-of-body experience. I remember looking down at my legs seeing them shake, thinking, hmm, that's the strangest thing, my legs are shaking. And so, but on the, the side of the addict, there's often relief and release because they've let out this secret they've been carrying for years. And so um, they're certainly not in a place of, of empathy at that point. So having, having, each having their own support, I think, is critical. And then um, we're both trying to figure things out. We're both trying to uh, use our logic. That's, that's the very definition of sight. And um, I feel like this is an important place to bring in the faith piece because faith is the opposite of sight. And when you're dealing with something this grave and this great, frankly, I needed a bigger perspective. I needed a perspective because my flesh and my intellect said, I'm out of here. And I got biblical grounds, so... Um, there was a great deal of fear. There was a great deal of doubt. Those are definitely huge roadblocks along the way. And then um, I put nothing feels real or true, and I would underline feels. Feelings become very huge. Feelings are not the same as truth, and feelings can derail us. So um, I love the fact that faith can lift us out of the fog and give us a, a different perspective. So um, I remember sitting down in one of those first three days when I was getting the information. I remember sitting down with my Bible, and uh, maybe it was after the third day, and just thought, I'm going to open my Bible because that's what, because I'm a Christian, and that's what Christians are do. That's what Christians do. If I were to be totally honest, I thought, I'm just going to do this because this is what I'm supposed to do. And I opened it up, and I read in Isaiah, and the first scripture that I read was, your maker is your bridegroom. And um, that was what I needed to hear. I felt, like, I felt like God just, you know, reached down into my circumstance and said, I'm here, and I see you. So that piece was huge. I, I can't even imagine doing this without him. 
The key takeaway for me is you can't do this hard work. I mentioned it earlier. You're, you are doing the hard for the betrayer. You are doing the hardest work you will ever do in your entire life. And you cannot do it on your own. I know there are some that have, quote unquote, done it through white knuckling. But all you have, if you've changed your behaviors, but you haven't changed the heart, all you have is an addict who's not behaving poorly. You're still an addict and you're still struggling and you're white knuckling it and it is exhausting. Take it from someone who knows, it is absolutely exhausting. The only person that's going to get you through this truly and find freedom is through God. I've tried it, the white knuckling part, didn't work. Didn't work for me anyway. You need to allow, because that hole that we're filling, that, that reason why the man is walking through the, the door of a brothel in, in search for God is finding something to plug this hole in our heart through either the pain and the trauma in our lives. And that can honestly only come through your journey with God. Um, for me, walking by faith equaled finding support. I had support, obviously, in the group that I had started. I had support in some very close safe friends. Uh, like I said, there were not a lot of, of things out. We had the group that we, in our church, but we picked up Earl and Sandy Wilson's book, No Relation, um, Restoring the Fallen, and so we, we surrounded ourselves with a couple of other couples and had a spiritual care team. And the first time, I'll never forget that first meeting. It was huge. We had, so there's um, the six of us, and they, they were asking about me. Like, how am I doing? Uh, that was just so amazing in, the, in that moment of somebody caring about me. When the very person who's supposed to do that job, my husband, had betrayed and devastated me. And I remember they were challenging him on something about caring for me. And he got really mad, really mad. And all five of them are saying, and then finally one of the lead guys says, you know what, you're, I'm really offended by your behavior. And they ended the group, and I thought, oh, great I got to go home with him he's mad but to my husband's credit he went home and he thought about it he's an internal processor and he come he came back and he said you know what when five people are telling you that something's true at some point I have to believe it's true so huge first step huge first step and then as I said we each had counselors I had a female counselor he had a male counselor and um, and so we really really had a, a small army of people to kind of guide us through the process. And um, apparently that's a good way to go. It's good to know. I think, I think Stephanie would agree with that. One of the things I learned on this journey was um, for me to stop being overly responsible. I grew up in a family with alcohol in my background. My husband grew up in a family with alcohol in his background. We both Air Force brats. We both, we would laugh about where we were meant for each other. Um, but for me, it was being overly responsible. I figured if there was ever anything wrong, it must have been something I did. It's exhausting. So to figure out that um, I don't have to be that. And then for my husband, he was probably on the under-responsible. It's not my fault, you know, just deny, blame. There's all kinds of, of tools in that. So I have good news and bad news. <laughs> we both had to learn that we were only responsible for ourselves. That, for me, that was good news. When you go from the world to just you, that's pretty darn good. Um, but then the other thing I learned is I'm a full-time job. And my husband had to learn he's a full-time job. In other words, I can spend 
the rest of my life on working on myself, working on my issues, you know, working particularly on my relationship with Christ, and I'm not going to arrive. So any, any t- amount of time that I'm wasting on trying to help someone else is time that I'm taking away from my own growth. And so that was a huge shift for me and um, really, really good. Um, focusing only on your own stuff tends to level the playing field, which is really, really important. Um, the, the ground at the foot of the cross is level. There are no highs, there are no lows. Every single person that God created is priceless in his view. And this is going to, we get messages against this every day in our world. So we have to we have to really let God show us that this is the truth in his economy. You're not less than, you're not more than. And believe me, I grew up believing I was less than. I believed that there were, you know, I would compare myself to other women. And, you, you know, if I was at a conference like this and somebody was up front, oh, yeah, she's, she's got the red phone to God. Can I just tell you that is so not true? That um, we all have our issues we all have our dark places and our bad days and um, again it's freeing when you realize that there are not there are not less than and more than there are people that like to tell you they're more than (laughs) but don't believe it and then you know you can't change God's love for you we can't earn it we can't buy it while we were yet sinners while we were yet steeped in whatever crap we were steeped in he died for us that's the greatest level of, of love a person can give. He couldn't die anymore, and he couldn't die any less. He died for us. And, you know, we hear that all the time in church, to the fact where it's, sometimes we don't even hear what it means anymore. And I really want you to hear what it means. It means that his grace is sufficient for wherever you've been. There is nobody who's out of his graces or who's disqualified from redemption until you die. As long as you're here, there's an opportunity for, for him to, to redeem whatever your circumstance is. And I can say that with every fiber of my being because after 15 years of walking with hundreds and hundreds of faith, you know, faithful couples, people who want Christ in the center, over and over and over again, I see his hand is consistent. I see that his promises in his word are true for me and for you. So please hear me. I am not up here because I'm special. I am only up here because of the grace of God. I got a D in speech in junior high. And if the Holy Spirit leaves, you're going to get rain, man. I'm telling you. So just, just know that it's not anything. It's just everything that, that I'm talking about is available to anyone who, who wants to. Um, because no one is perfect. Every one of us is broken. There just isn't one person that, there just isn't one. Well, there was one, but he's God. He's died. He's waiting for us. Um, this is another um, one of the letting go of the other voices for me. I think every person has to deal with their own stuff and uh, control when, when you're about to fall, or when the ground gets pulled out from underneath you, your tendency is to often grab on, and that can look like control. And um, 
I've learned that peace is knowing that there's someone bigger and smarter and way more powerful in control. I really like that. I really need to know that. I don't have to have all the answers. I don't have a problem saying I don't know. I, you know, people can debate big theological questions and I'll just smile. And because I don't, I'm that person that doesn't have to know. I know that there's somebody who does know and um, that I'm on a need to know basis other than that. So that brings a great deal of peace for me. That may freak some people out. But I can tell you that trying to take control will equal frustration. It's just, it will frustrate you. And that's part of, part of that others not being our job. So when we're trying to take on something that's not ours, it's too heavy for us. We each have our own load and it's plenty big enough. And I've also found, again, letting go is freedom. And freedom uh, to have boundaries and freedom to decide what you can and can't do. So it's not this letting go like I'm an idiot and I don't use my brain anymore. So let me clarify that. Having boundaries is an important part of self-care. And um, valuing myself is an important part of self-care. I see over and over um, women, we, we tend to do this very well of putting everybody first. And there's not much left for us at the end of the day. And that's not biblical. And it's not what God wants for us. And um, I love the fact that nobody's used the word codependent here just have to say that. That was the first thing that was slapped on me when, uh, you know, I started reading and doing things. It was like, oh, you're codependent. Well, it's probably true, but I really hate, (laughs) I really hate labels. And so um, I'm really glad that we're not using that. But it's an important part of our growth journey to begin to um, realize that it's not selfish to take care of yourself. It's my daughter, my youngest daughter, is a flight attendant for Alaska Airlines, and you know the spiel. They, you have to put on, if you have a small child with you, you have to put their, you have to put your oxygen mask on first before you help somebody else. Well, it's a really good principle. It applies here. We have to make sure that we're filled up, that we have what we need, and then we can offer, you know, encouragement or whatever out of a full place. That's very different than, than um, continually offering up a sacrifice that nobody asked for, and um, it's you. So this is an important piece, and no one else will do it. No one else can do it. It's part of that job. It's part of you being responsible for you. Um, we want other people to do it. I wanted other people to know what I needed, because I was brought up in a, in a home where I was supposed to anticipate the needs of other people. So I kind of came into my marriage with that expectation. And then I had to realize, oh, wow, unspoken um, expectations are invitations to disappointment. So I had to learn to ask for what I wanted. I had to learn to figure out what I wanted first. And then I had to learn to ask for it. And my kids, my girls are really good. They'll, they'll call me out on it. They're like, Mom, what are, you, what are you asking for? And I'll be like, oh, wow, was I doing it again? Yeah. Because, you know, it's really good intentions. I don't want to inconvenience anyone. It looks can look look like it's really good, but it's not. It's not honesty, and we're trying to go for for honesty in in our family. So, like I said, we have we each have we each have our own load, 
And then we also have burdens, and we do share each other's burdens, but that's different. Sharing each other, that's empathy, that's encouragement, that's part of being in the family of God, but it's not the same thing as trying to take on somebody's load. Okay, this is the part of the discussion where I'm going to tackle the F word. Yep, I know it's a church presentation, but I have to do it. I'm going to do it. Forgiveness. Forgiveness is very misunderstood in the church, the place where we're supposed to teach and, and, and um, encourage forgiveness, the place where forgiveness is probably what drew us to the church in the first place. Um, it's complex. Uh, it's not one and done. It's not a high-gloss finish that you put on things, which is kind of what, we, what I did. And... Um, it has many layers. It takes time to, to process it. And um, it's, let me tell you a few things that forgiveness is not. It's not easy. It's not saying what happened is okay. It's not, uh, doesn't always mean reconciliation. The requirement to forgive isn't reconciliation. In other words, God wants us to forgive whether that person is, is, knows it or not or is willing to change. It's not removing the consequences of someone's poor decision, and it's not for the betrayer. It's for you. It's for me. It's so that we don't for, we're not forever tied emotionally to something somebody else did. It's freedom. I think I, it's, there's a really good quote. I hope I don't mess it up. But it's like drinking the poison that you ha have or want for someone else that betrayed you. Instead, it, it damages you. It damages your heart. It damages your inside. Um, and it starts with us. It starts with forgiving yourself, which can, that's one of those things that can lie dormant for a while. We were we, we have a hard time forgiving others. Sometimes when we peel back enough layers, it's because we have a hard time forgiving ourselves. We haven't fully accepted the grace that God's given us. I discovered through this process that grace is very, very costly. Grace is not easy. And um, I think sometimes we preach an easy grace and we sell an easy grace. And I've never hung on a cross and I can't imagine what it's like. But just having to extend grace to the very person who was to love me and who made vows to me gave me a little bit of an understanding of maybe what God deals with on a global level. Because we betray him in ways, I, I'll speak for myself, I betray him in ways all the time that I need to deal with and learn from. So um, the good thing is it's not something that we have to work up. It's not something that we're going to, you know, muscle up. It's something that God does through us. It's something that we have to get out of the way and allow, say, God, I'm going to allow you to do this work through me. That's what happened in that moment when Dave was sharing his stuff. I, I really don't take credit for that other than I, I said, okay, God, I'm going to do what you're calling me to do. And then he, his grace flowed through. And, um, and it was powerful because it didn't just change Dave, it changed me. 
and it changed the way I see God, and it changed the way I see the world. And um, that's the beautiful thing about God, is he uses everything. Nothing's wasted. If we will give it to him, he, there's nothing wasted. There's nothing he can't use. Um, and there's really no failure that he can't use, except one. There is one way to fail, and that's to choose not to heal. That's to choose not to listen to him. That's to, that's to remain in the, in the sight faith, sight place instead of the faith place. That's to, sometimes that can be remaining a victim. That can be rejecting the truth. And these can go for either the addict or the person betrayed. That can be to refuse constructive input, to blame others. Those are just a top few. There's many other ways that we can just put a barrier around us and refuse, reject reject the truth. And that's the only really way to fail. And that's because we miss out on so much that God has for us. Excuse me. And I'm not talking about perfection because as, as I've said, no one's perfect. Um, but the interesting thing is that we were created for perfection. And, um, but I just have to remember that heaven is not here. There is, there, is, um, there is a prince on a white horse that carries us off to a place where there's no more pain, there's no more tears. The fantasy is true, it's just not true here. This place is where we learn about the person we're going to spend eternity with. And um, I put it this way, we can... We can um, we can accept Christ as fire insurance, I think, and we can die and go into heaven and they look for your name and, oh, there you are, and you go in and, and you might have a little bit of culture shock. Or I can accept Christ, work on my relationship daily, talk to him daily, and then when the time comes, I can run through the pearly gates. I can sit in his lap and I can finish the conversation that we were having earlier that day. That's the way I want to go. There we go. So I have to let go of unrealistic expectations. Um, as I said, look for progress, not perfection. When you're dealing with uh, an addict, there will be, um, what's the word? There will be, I don't want to say relapse, there will be landmines along the way. There will, be, there will be places where, because there's a lot of satellite issues around addiction, so I'm not talking about going all the way back. In other words, I, I really felt like in the beginning when I was talking to God about divorcing my husband and how I had biblical grounds, and God said, you know what, I'm not asking you to stay and do this over and over again, but I am asking you to wait, because of course he knew what I didn't know, and um, and so I knew that if my husband, even now, I'm married to a man who at any day, any point, could make a decision and terminate our marriage. I, I will live that with that until one of us goes home. And so that's the reality of the situation. Um, but I also knew that, if, I knew that if he does that, that I would have the freedom to go. I know that that wouldn't be, God didn't say hang in there no matter what. I don't see anywhere in his word where he asks us to sacrifice 
our health and our well-being on the altar of our mate's selfishness, addiction. I just don't see that in his word. So, um, seek a divine perspective. I've said that. I, I can't state that enough. When, when God gives me his perspective on something, it changes me. It changes everything, except my circumstances, which is so interesting. I'm usually crying out to him because of some circumstance. He gives me a new perspective, and then that changes everything but the circumstances. It's kind of an interesting, it's kind of a God, it's, God, it's a God thing. I like word pictures, and so this is, uh, this is one of my favorite word pictures. I call it the arena of truth. It's just sort of a metaphor for the positionally where I want to stay. If you imagine an arena of some kind with the sawdust floor and, and uh, you know, the audience all around, and imagine a great big spotlight, that spotlight is Christ for me. If I stay in the truth and I stay under that spotlight, he can direct he can direct my path. I don't have to know where the obstacles are because I'm trusting that the person manning the spot knows where they are, and he will direct my path. The other beautiful thing that happens when you're in a spotlight, if you've ever been on a stage, is that the audience disappears. You can't see them anymore. And so that's the place I want to stay. I want to stay where the only voice or um, action that matters is what's happening with that person manning the spot and then the people on the outside don't matter anymore. Um, our, spice, our spouse cannot be the person holding that light. And um, I know for many of us, uh, part of the process is learning that our husbands were, was an idol. And I realized that cords of trust and cords of self-worth and cords of future security all of those cords were attached to my husband, and that's not where they were supposed to be. So each one of those cords had to be disconnected and reattached to Christ. So um, even though you know, our marriage has stayed intact, praise God, as of today, we're good, um, I knew that no matter what happened or no matter what happens in the future, I would be fine because everything I have is in Christ and no longer in my husband. That was a huge transition that needed to happen for us. And that's part of that, being in the arena of truth. And that's also why the goal can't be marriage. I see this, it seems like women are in one of two camps. Either they're like me, like, I'm out of here, I'm getting a divorce, I just want the pain to end, or they're, I am going to hold on to this marriage with every fiber of my being, no matter what he does, and um, I don't. Neither one, neither one is where we need to be. We have to be. Um, we have to get back to the truth, and we have to get back to that godly perspective. No person can 100% satisfy other than Christ. No person on this earth is going to be able to do that. Um, every person will let you down. If you've lived long enough, you know that this is true. I'm going to let my kids down. I'm going to let my husband down. I'm not going to do it on purpose, but I'm fallible. And I, it's just going to happen because that's who we are. We're broken. And um, it's good to know that. And then it's important, really, really important, if you're a believer, marriage is not eternal. But that relationship with Christ is. And... Um, 
the final piece, this one is it's kind of interesting to me. I've, as I said, I see women who hold on to their marriage, their husband's deep in their stuff, He's, their, their life and health it could be at risk, and yet they don't want to get divorced. And so I just point out the difference between a covenant versus a piece of paper filed in the court. God looks at the heart. So if God is looking at a marriage, he's looking for a man and a woman, seeking him, putting him in the, in the center, working towards the kind of marriage he put, lays out for us in his word. We're iron sharpening iron. We're spurring each other on to love and good deeds. We're encouraging, we're encouraging each other in our walk, in our faith. That's what God calls a marriage. It's two holes that he creates. He miraculously makes into one. The, what we have today are two broken pieces that fit together, and they file paperwork in the courts, and that's a marriage. And so um, I think... I think this. I think we need get we need to get back to valuing and placing marriage in the pr- in the proper place and the, and put it back the way God designed it, and not get hung up. Obviously, I wish every marriage would be saved. We started our first Healing Hope group last week, and a couple of the gals were like, "I want your story," and oh, that just that just hurts my heart and yet I get where it comes from because we all want the fairy tale we want the we want to get grow old with that one person and you know today it looks good we have that I might not have that five years from now or ten years from now and so it's more important that I have a solid relationship with Christ that I'm gonna have the right perspective on my husband and on the people in my world and then the piece of paper doesn't really take on that much meaning anymore. In other words, a lot of times the marriage has already ended when a woman comes to my group. The marriage has already ended. The covenant's been broken. He's not loving her like Christ loved the church. That's sort of an understatement. So, and yet she's worried about somehow this piece of paper. So anyway, I just... I just throw that out there because I feel like we need to talk about the difference, about what, what godly marriage really is. And, um, and then the last thing I would just say is, uh, this is the heartbeat, this is my passion, this is why I do what I do, is because I get to be on the front lines of what God's doing. I get to see him work every day in the lives of, of men and women. And um, I know, it's actually based on several scriptures, which is why it says that, but um, I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt that, that there is no one who reaches out for him and does not find him. There just isn't. So I love, I love all the psychological stuff and the tests and the, and the, and the, um, <clears throat> what, the, the, the books and all of that, but it, it still boils down, to me, it still boils down to Christ. The reason I stand here and my husband stands in a healing, on a healing journey and still married is because of Christ. And that's, that's my story. Sticking with it. That is, by the way, the garden at Giverny in France. We got to go this year. So my husband took that picture. I love it. You guys have any questions? Yes. I would say one word first and that's pray to him more than you talk to him and talk to God before you talk to him 
because you're you're in an interesting place. You're right now. You're the you're the physical representation of God to Him. You may be the only Bible He reads, so you kind of have a responsibility in that place and that choice. And then, as far as the the nuts and bolts, you have to decide. There's nothing you can do to um, make Him have faith, or you know what I mean. You can just represent Christ, and then you have to decide what it is you can and can't live with. What is it you can and can't live with? That's, and that's only something you and God can decide. But I will tell you that if you take the time to talk to him, he'll guide your path. So I never tell anyone what to do because I am not God, and you guys be glad I'm not. Because, I mean, I've had women in the beginning come into the group, and I'm thinking, oh, gosh, she should so dump her husband. And you know what? A few years later, they're doing great. Or I think, wow, this couple's awesome and they're doing great. And a few years later, they're not doing great. So, you know, I don't have any wisdom in, in that regard or any crystal ball. So it's always going to go back. So it's, I'm always going to go back to God. That's, that's where the solid ground is for me. So it's a good question, though. And you're, yeah, you've got a, you've got a situation there. So I will be praying for you and praying for your husband. When we were first married, I, accept, I rededicated my life to Christ before my husband. So there was a couple years there where it was similar. Now, we, weren't, we were equally yoked when we were married because I wasn't really practicing. And then I came back when I had my daughter. Because I'm telling you, if you don't know there's a God before you have a baby, after you have a baby, it's pretty dang clear. <laughs> And so, and I just waited and prayed, and he would, uh, we'd have questions. I remember one time, he's like, okay, I don't get this whole devil thing. And I said, well, first of all, get the red guy in a red suit with a pitchfork out of your mind. It's more like, ooh, it's more like um, Star Wars, you know, the evil and the good. And, you know, I would just try to answer his questions, and then um, just through circumstances that God orchestrated and maneuvered my husband became a believer before my daughter was two. So prayer is our greatest weapon. Yeah, no, good good question. We call that spiritual abuse because there are men and, and who misuse the word of God, misquote. Um, so again, nothing makes me more angry than having the God that I know and love misrepresented. So I say to you that there are a lot of things going on in church and in the world, and I think God's up there going, don't put my name on that. So I would just say, if that's you, maybe don't get involved in, in a church body for a while. Just, just go solo. Get in his word. Let God speak to you specifically. That word is living and active. And, you know, find a really good devotional by some dead guy. Really. So... Um, Oswald Chambers, some really rich, nothing to say. I mean, those of us that are still alive and writing, we sometimes get it right. But there's just something really rich in, in some of the older texts, and it's, and it's before this whole seeker-sensitive kind of idea, and I'm, I'm better, and I've already said too much. I love the church, and I love God, and I, but I also know that it's full of broken people. So we, we hurt each other, and that hurts the heart of God, I know. It hurts me. So good question. And I, I don't know if there are any good books on spiritual abuse. I don't know if anybody's written anything on that. I should look into that. But it is a real thing. And it's, it's, it's devastating because you're, you're, you're messing with somebody's concept of God and eternity. And, and of course, their, their value and their, their, their um, concept, their self-concept. So 
It's, it's, that's right up there with the crazy making and that kind of manipulation. So I'm sorry that that happens. Yeah, I'm, I can't speak to that experientially. Um, I would say that, that most of the other major religions have some aspect of Christianity in them. So, and um, we, were, we, were cre we were all created for the truth. So I think the truth resonates with us. And I may be a little liberal, more liberal than some people. I mean, I think there will be, I think people will be surprised at who's in heaven and who's not. So I, I'm going to stick with the fact that God looks at the heart. And um, yeah, so I don't, I don't, I'm not intimidated by that. What I have is, is my personal experience with Christ. Nobody can tell me that's not true or not. And, and so that would be the same for you with yours. So yeah. But I had to let go of his faith journey looking anything like mine. It, I had to let go of that. And I had to let him wrestle with God, wrestle with scripture. So yeah, no, you just, that's part of that process for me was really just, you know, no control. Let him go. Let him do. Let him figure it out. Know that big God's big enough to meet him in his doubts, meet him in his fears, meet him in his view of God as an angry God. I think that's not uncommon, especially when your dad's not there for you emotionally. Thank you for your questions, and thanks for being here. You have been listening to an audio recording from the Northwest Coalition for Healthy Intimacy. For more information or other recordings, please visit our website at www.healthyintimacy.net. Thank you for listening.